Reunion Psalm 118 verses 22 and 23 and Matthew chapter 21 verse 42 was presented by Ron Julian on August 6, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute. Reunion Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew the copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. So my task is to talk about the relationship of Psalm 118 to Matthew 21. This is a work in progress for me. I hope my thoughts, as far as they have gone, will be helpful to you. Looking at Psalm 118 first, it starts with a very important first sentence. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his chesed is everlasting. This is a sentence that ends up appearing a lot of times in the Old Testament. David, when he was bringing the ark to Jerusalem, there was a ritual involved with it. The people were arrayed around. There was responsive. Someone would say something and then people would respond. So a great ritual involved. And part of what they said there was, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his chesed is everlasting. Then when Solomon dedicated the temple, celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, booths, Along with that, talking about the establishment of the Davidic throne, and once again, this language was used in the public ceremony. After the Babylonian captivity, when Ezra comes back and lays the foundation of the rebuilt temple, once again, we have very similar language to this being publicly said. And then in Nehemiah, we see Ezra leading the people in celebrating the Feast of Booths after the temple is reopened. And once again, we have this language being used. So it is interesting that we see this opening idea associated with numerous public rituals associated with the temple as well as with the Feast of Booths. And it came to be that Psalm 118 was eventually often used in the Feast of Tabernacles and also Passover. So people have noticed this connection and it has led people to suggest the possibility that maybe the psalm was written for one of these occasions. Some have proposed that it was written for the reopening of the temple under Nehemiah or something like that. So we don't know exactly, but there is that possibility that it was written to be a publicly proclaimed, sung, enacted sort of psalm on one of these kinds of occasions. I make the observation, this is a tentative observation, some people see it this way, some people don't, but the psalm sounds to me like it is intended to be a physical enactment of a ritual where a representative person perhaps a group of people with them, moving toward the temple with people responsively answering and so forth. I'll try to point this out as we go along. Again, as I say, 
Some people would agree with this way of looking at it. Some people would not. But I notice at the beginning, verse 2, O let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. O let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. And this is chesed in each of these cases. And O let those who fear the Lord say, His chesed is everlasting. It sure sounds like that could be intended to be a responsive, O let Israel say, and then... People say that, and then the house of Aaron in particular, and then everyone, all those who fear the Lord. Again, can we prove it? Are we certain that that's the case? I'm not sure, but it sounds to me like it could be like that. So we move on. From my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. So the person who is speaking here is presenting himself as being surrounded by the nations. He's being rescued by God in the midst of this. Again, it's far from certain that this is the case, but it does strike me that if this is, in fact, something as, that as we go along, it looks more and more like it might be, if it's something that is intended to be sung or recited on this procession into the city, that this is easily something that could be enacted, this over-repetition of the nation surrounded me in the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You could picture that as being something that would be acted out. And if this is so, the person here is portrayed as being attacked by the nations and being rescued by God. Is the speaker here meant to represent Israel as a nation? Does it represent the king in particular, as the representative and protector of Israel. Maybe it is the king in actuality who is saying these things or intended to be saying them as we go along. Again, these are all things that some people would argue one way, some people would argue the other way. In 14, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. I just want to make the simple comment that part of this language, the Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation, The right hand of the Lord is exalted. This is language that comes from the Song of Moses, where the song that Moses wrote when God rescued them from Pharaoh and Pharaoh and his army drowned in the Red Sea and so forth. The picture there of God intervening to rescue the people from the attack that was coming against them. In that case, it was Pharaoh. Okay, so now, again... Tentatively, we can picture the celebrant here arriving at the gates, the city gates. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. 
I shall give thanks to the Lord. And the people could be pictured as responding back, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous will enter through it. Then we come to the part that we're concerned with, I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, if we are picturing the possibility here that we have an actual movement into the city that's being portrayed here, then it does seem to me possible that the imagery, the metaphor of the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone could actually have been motivated by a physical reality in the story of either the building or the rebuilding of the temple. Remember, the language that opens the psalm is said to have been announced when Ezra laid the foundation stone for the rebuilt temple and so on. So far from certain, we can't say with certainty, but it does seem possible to me that this idea that, huh, we actually know that in the physical process of building, the stone which the builders put aside and said, we don't know, we're not going to build with that, in the end, that ended up being the most important one. And that then becomes a physical metaphor that you're using, okay, and I can use that to make the point that I want to make. So, again, possibly. We'll come back to that in a minute. Then we go on, O Lord, do save, we beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So if we were to picture this in the way that I think is possible, remember the celebrant has arrived, he wants to go through the gates, There is this appeal to God, and then blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This would be the people in the city welcoming the one who has come and is going to go through the gates. And this one has come in the name of the Lord. And if you take that in the way it's typically used, the idea of coming in the name of the Lord might very well indicate that we're talking about somebody who is the king or represents the king or something. This is someone who is coming in the name of the Lord, someone that we welcome as, in welcoming you, we are welcoming the Lord and his purposes. You'll remember the interesting part of that, of course, is that this is the language that the people use on the day of Jesus' triumphal entry. The Hosanna that they call out is from verse 25, we beseech you, is that Hosanna, and then blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they call out. Well, this doesn't prove anything, but it is interesting that they cry out just as Jesus is making this procession into the city. And it could be that people already understood and saw this language of we welcome the one who is coming in the name of the Lord as he is coming through the gate into the city, that they would have understood Psalm 118 in that way and seen themselves as essentially saying, Jesus, you are that one who comes in the name of the Lord, you are the Messiah. And then finally, the celebrant here has arrived in the temple area at the altar. The Lord is God and has given us light Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. 
Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his chesed is everlasting. So the last place, we've gone through the gates, and the last place, then we've arrived at the altar where the offering is going to be made. Okay, so looking back then at verse 22, which we're concerned with, as I say, I think it's possibly inspired by an actual event in the construction of the temple. That's not required, but it would make a certain amount of sense. But the issue is, what does it mean? It seems to be being used as a metaphor. It's not really concerned with the stones of the building. Well, if we think about what the imagery there conjures up, you picture the builders, who you would think are the ones who have the expertise, the ones who would know what to do. They looked at this stone and said, we don't want it. We don't even want to build with this stone. This is not one we want to use. And yet, in the end... By the activity of God, that stone ends up not only being used in the building, but it is the most important stone in the building. That's what God did. I'll make a side comment that as far as I could tell in the discussion about this phrase, it is either picturing a cornerstone or it is picturing a capstone, a keystone at the corner of where the walls meet. And it all depends on how you interpret the Hebrew as to what is being pictured there. So, but what are we talking about then? Okay, so we've got this picture. The builders thought this was a bad stone, but in the end, it ended up being the most important one. Some of the later rabbis took this to be a reference to David. You can see it in the commentaries, and there is a targum that actually translates this where the stone ends up being David. So the rabbis thought that it was referring to David. Some of them did. Rabbi Jack is one who has argued that in the past. I don't know what you're thinking these days. So the idea would be the people wanted a tall, handsome, imposing figure like Saul, but God chose the insignificant shepherd boy, David, or something like that. There's also, if we think about it in the context, we have a picture of someone who is being attacked by the nations. He's moving along toward the temple, and the nations are like the bees around him, and they're attacking, and yet, in the name of the Lord, he cuts them off. God ends up saving and establishing this one. So if we picture this one as representing the nation or being the king, perhaps, or something like that, notice in the immediate context, he says, I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So it's possible in the context that the picture might be of the people of Israel or the king of Israel as representing the people or something like that, that the ruler of Israel has been rejected by the nations, by the important powers and so forth in their trying to build kingdoms and so forth, they would try to set Israel and its king aside, and yet in the end it ends up becoming the chief cornerstone of the kingdom of God ruling over all the earth. So that would be another way that you might take it. It's a little bit difficult. For me at this point, it's hard to be definitive exactly how to take it in that way. But David or a Davidic king or the nation of Israel as a whole. In a way, those things kind of merge together. We're talking about 
the establishment of God's will centered in the king and people of Israel, becoming the center of everything. So something like that seems to be going on. Okay, so then let me make a comment about Matthew. In Matthew 21:33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Okay, so we can note at the beginning that the language at the beginning of this seems to be drawing quite a bit from Isaiah chapter 5, where we read at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 5, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed, and so on. Okay, so the metaphorical imagery here is not exactly the same, but the language starts out quite similar, and in that image, the vineyard represents Israel. God has a desire to get good fruit from the vineyard, but he doesn't, and so he's going to break down the vineyard. And this is all a part of the language of judgment that we see throughout Isaiah. Now, in this particular context, this is part of a set of parables and interactions that happen between the chief priests and the elders of the people. So we're talking about the leadership from among the Sadducees and the leadership from among the Pharisees, probably a group from the Sanhedrin that is talking to Jesus here. So this is very much the Jewish leadership that Jesus is talking to as he's giving these parables. And in our discussion, Chris pointed out, and I thought it was interesting, that in Isaiah it is the vineyard that is being criticized for not producing good grapes. In this parable, it is the vine growers, it is the tenant farmers who are being criticized for not giving to the owner the produce that we'd be looking for. And 
it might very well be that that subtlety actually does indicate the fact that it is not the people that are being criticized here, but it is the farmers, the leaders, the ones who are teaching and leading them to produce what they do. And it is interesting at the end of this that after the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was talking about them. So it does seem quite likely that the focus of the dispute throughout Matthew 21 in this section is this dispute between the leadership and Jesus. Now, I'd like to make a little detour at this point. There's something I do want to talk about. It may not be essential to our discussion about the relationship between the psalm and what Jesus is doing here, but I think it's pretty important. I said this morning that I would say something about this. There's a lot of discussion when it comes to parables as to how parables should be understood. How do you interpret a parable of Jesus? What are we looking for? And a lot of that discussion has centered around people throw around the word allegory. Are the parables allegories or are they not? Jack today said that the story, whether if you want to call it a parable, but the story that Jesus tells about the unclean spirits going through waterless places and so on, that he said that was an allegory. Many would argue that the parables are allegories. Many would argue that the parables are not allegories. But it seems to me that what's at stake, I would agree with everything that Jack was saying this morning, what's at stake is not the word allegory, but how we think about what sort of a thing the parables are. That is, is allegory, if we understand the word allegory to mean symbolic language, symbolic code, where the story itself doesn't necessarily have to make sense, versus we could think of an analogy where you tell a story and the person hears the story and it makes sense to them. So you go, yeah, I see what's going on. And then you say, okay, well, then it's like that. If that's the issue, then I would argue that the parables are not allegories. People often point to this particular parable that we're looking at here and say, see, it's an allegory. And what they mean is, look, there are several points of contact in this story. The vineyard represents Israel. The servants who are killed represent the prophets. The son, who obviously who comes here, represents Jesus. See, that's allegorical language. You have various symbolic elements in the story. But let me give you an example of that will, I hope will clarify what's at stake here. Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel gives what he calls a parable. But the picture that he gives is something like this. An eagle plucks the top off of a cedar in Lebanon and sets it among a town of merchants. It also plants the seeds by the waters and they grow into a vine. But the vine, however, reaches out toward another eagle seeking to be watered by it. Okay, so... What I would say about that story is that is what I would call a classic allegory. It is symbolic language. It makes no sense. That is, we don't think about our experience with eagles to make sense of it. 
Oh, yeah, like that time that that eagle took the top of the tree and went and planted it, and then the vine reached out to another eagle rather than that. I mean, that's not what happens. When you substitute that the first eagle is Babylon and the second eagle is Egypt and so on, and you substitute in all of the symbolic code, then you have understood the point. That's The whole point of it was just to speak symbolically. Now, to contrast that, Nathan goes to David and he tells him a parable. This is after, remember the story that David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he had arranged for her husband to be killed so it wouldn't be found out uh, what he had done. So Nathan comes to tell us a story about a rich man who instead of taking from his own flocks, takes the one beloved lamb that belongs to his poor neighbor. And David hears this story and he gets angry. Let's find that rich guy and he deserves to die. This is terrible. And then Nathan says, you are the man. See, the story that Nathan told made sense as a story. You could hear it and say, okay, yeah, I have an emotional reaction to what's happening in this story. Even though David didn't at all understand that elements of that story were meant to represent his situation. Nathan came along and said, oh, I'm talking about you. And all of a sudden it falls into place for David. Oh, you're talking about me. And the emotional response he had to the story about the rich man is supposed to come home to him when he thinks about his own situation. Now, we compare Ezekiel and Nathan, these two situations. Nathan is clearly giving an analogy. Ezekiel is clearly being allegorical. It's just symbolic language. Okay, well, what do we have happening in our parable here then? Well, we do have symbolic language. We have the vineyard I think the imagery of the vineyard is even being chosen because of the language in Isaiah. So it is definitely meant to represent Israel, and the Son represents the Messiah and so forth. So there are these various points of contact. But notice the way the story is told. Jesus tells the story about these farmers who will not give the produce from the vine to the owner, and the owner sends servants, and they beat them up and kill them. And then he sends his son, and they kill him. And then Jesus said, what should that owner of the vineyard do? And they say, man, he should get them out of there and find somebody who's going to pay him the produce that he owes. They have, just like David didn't understand Nathan's point yet, they didn't understand what Jesus was getting at, but they understood the story. The story made perfect sense. And then it is through Jesus' following comments that ultimately they come to understand he's talking about us. And it says he's talking about us. So I would give that as evidence that ultimately the parables of Jesus and this parable is not an example of an allegory in the sense of a classic allegory. It's an analogy. He tells a story that is kind of like the situation that he's talking about because he wants them to feel the power of this real-life kind of situation so that he can then apply that to them. I hope that makes sense, what I'm saying there, is we don't just go in and say, oh, okay, the vineyard represents Israel, or so on. We have to feel the power of the story itself, and then, like the chief priests and the elders, 
when the analogy hits home and Jesus says, okay, I'm talking about you, it can have that power with us. We go, oh, right. That same dynamic is at play in what we're talking about here. So I hope that's helpful. Okay, so Jesus follows the story, and the story portrays. He leads to that conclusion on their part. That vineyard owner needs to get those guys out and put in somebody else. And it's then that Jesus follows their comment with this comment about, haven't you read the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone? Well, like we saw before, at least part of this analogy seems clear to me. The Jewish leaders are like the builders. They are the experts. They are the ones who supposedly are working toward building up the kingdom of God. They ought to know. There's the students of the scriptures and so on, and yet they have rejected Jesus. He's standing right in front of them, and they refuse to acknowledge the evidence of the miracles he's doing and so on. But in fact, what's going to happen is God is going to make him the chief cornerstone, the one that they have rejected. They are the builders, and they have rejected this stone, but in the end, the stone that they have rejected is going to be the center of everything. I'll point out, by the way, that in Acts chapter 4, My assumption is, in this situation, Peter is remembering how Jesus used the Psalm 118 and is making exactly the same point that Jesus was making. But in chapter 4, starting, let's say in verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. So that seems to be Peter giving his basic understanding of the sort of thing that Jesus was doing with it. But So that makes sense. If this was just an analogy that Jesus made up on the spot, I think the analogy would make sense. Okay? The builders, who ought to know, have rejected this stone, but it ends up being the chief cornerstone. The question is, what does Jesus understand it to mean in Psalm 118, and why is he saying, haven't you read that? How is he making the connection between them? And I don't think that's an easy question to answer. It does strike me that there is kind of a tragic irony here in that if I have some sort of understanding of what's happening in the psalm, Psalm 118 is something that the Jewish leadership would be very familiar with. This is the psalm regularly accompanied the celebrations involved with the Feast of Booths and also the Passover. So this is something that people are used to singing and knowing. And this idea that the stone that was rejected has become the chief cornerstone, this would be a cause of celebration. However they understood it, whether they saw it as David is being portrayed there or just the king of Israel in general or the Messiah who is coming or symbolizing Israel as a nation. I mean, you could make arguments for each of those things. I have heard it said, I don't know that this is the case, but I have seen people argue that 
a typical Jewish understanding at the time would have been that it, this was messianic, that the Messiah was being pictured there. I'm not sure that that's true, but it sounds plausible. But So here's this picture of celebrating the fact that the king or the Messiah or David or Israel as a nation, even though others have rejected it, in the end it has been made the chief. This is something that they would have looked at and celebrated, but Jesus is basically then sort of ironically turning the tables on them and saying basically, I'm saying that in this situation you are the builders, you have rejected the stone, and in the end that stone that you have rejected is going to be the center of everything. It all depends on how you understand exactly what the picture is in Psalm 118, how much you see it as being specifically pointed at the Jewish people and leadership. If you were to picture it as, let me describe it like this, the Jewish people wanted a tall, hunky guy like Saul and totally overlooked the little guy like David, okay, then you could say, okay, so and here we have another situation. Here the Jewish leadership, they want something else and they're overlooking the real king who's in front of them. Or if it's the picture as it, I'm inclined to think in the psalm because the whole picture is one of the nations surrounding the celebrant and he, in the name of the Lord he will cut them off and the Lord has delivered him from this. If it's more a picture of the world, the surrounding nations rejecting Israel and its king, but in the end God establishes it, then there's a real irony here. Jesus isn't saying the psalm teaches that the Pharisees were going to do what they did, but what he's saying is, you have come to be in the place of the very thing that you would most oppose. That picture of the nations striving against the king of Israel, and yet in the end, God has established him. You have come to be in their place. You are in the place where you have rejected his stone in the end. So, depending on how you see the psalm would be how closely it would be tied together there. But I think, however you look at it, there is this tragic irony that the chief priests and the elders are in the process of walking away from the one who is going to establish the very kingdom that their whole existence is about. Okay, and then we end with, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. I don't have a lot to say about this at this point. Obviously, this is a classic sort of replacement theology sort of verse. I'm not a replacement theology sort of person, so... There's a lot that we could say about what specifically is being gotten at here. That's not my purpose here today. But I do think that it seems that the focus in particular in this whole section is on the chief priests and the elders, the leadership on the Pharisee side and on the Sadducee side, both for each for their own reasons, ultimately rejecting the Messiah. We end with, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. I think that Jesus is constructing a picture, drawing on some other stone imagery from the Old Testament. I know that we see this happening in the New Testament. I am told by people who ought to know that this was a not uncommon practice among the 
rabbinic teachers to take words that are in common in different places in the Old Testament and draw those passages together to create a kind of a, here's a mini lesson I'm going to put together using these different words. Now, obviously, that's a sort of game that could go terribly wrong if you're not paying attention to what it is those words mean in their context. But we see in, like, First Peter, for example, Peter does a thing where he takes three of these different stone passages from the Old Testament, applies them to Jesus, and I think if we go and we look at each of them, the way that he has brought them together and is applying them to Jesus is entirely legitimate. There are messianic implications for all of those passages, and so he's right to bring them together. Here I think it's possible that Jesus is drawing on two stone images that we have in the Old Testament. The first one, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. This comes from the context that we looked at first this week, Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 in there. In chapter 8, he says, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike, and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught." So we have an image here of falling and being broken on, over this stone that God is going to establish. And I think in the context, we're not very far from the discussion about the child who is going to be born, the Davidic king, the Messiah. So the thing that God is going to establish that is this rock that will either be a sanctuary or something that you will fall on and be destroyed ends up being the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom, the Messiah himself. So it would make sense that Jesus would draw on that imagery here. The other one, on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Again, I may be reaching here, but it just does strike me that we have in Daniel, which is quite a messianic sort of book in a lot of ways, we have the imagery of the statue there is a, so he's thinking about the statue, the head of the statue, its legs were so on. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, clay, and bronze crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. I'm sorry, chapter 2 of Daniel. I'm looking at verse 32 and following there. Okay, so... So we have two pictures of a stone or a rock that Jesus may be calling on. The kingdom, the Messiah, the messianic kingdom, like a rock that is either a sanctuary or if you fall on it, you will break. And then a picture of the messianic kingdom as a rock that comes down and crushes the feet of the statue to dust. So... We see here in Jesus, if that's right, a tendency that we see continued in throughout the New Testament. There are several places where the apostles 
will gather together various stone images from these passages and apply them to Jesus. The imagery, I think, what he's saying is basically, if you picture the, there's the sort of thing that if you fall on it, you will break, and if it falls on you, you'll become dust. That means you're not going to win. <laughs> you go at it, you're going to lose. It comes at you, you're going to lose. It's kind of the, and that's what Jesus is saying to the chief priests and Pharisees in this case. So, to finish off, my understanding right now, I recognize that there are a lot of complicated issues and there may be places where I'm missing things. I feel almost certain that there probably are. But right now what makes sense to me is that the imagery of the builders rejecting a stone only to have it become the most important stone in the end was in a context where we're talking about possibly a messianic picture or at least the place of Israel in the world, perhaps represented by its king and something like that. And what Jesus is doing then is saying, you know that picture, that picture that you celebrate, that the stone has been established by God? You have put yourself in the place where you are like the builders who have rejected the stone. And in the end, you don't want to be in that spot because this is the kind of stone that you can't win with. It's going to prevail. Okay, so that's what I've got to say about this.